Well, if you uh, turn with me then to Galatians 5, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 uh, of Galatians chapter 5. We looked at verses 1 to 6 last week, uh, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 12 tonight. But to put the whole thing in context, I'm going to read from verse 1, where Paul writes, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? to keep you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, If I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is God's word. And we're continuing with the theme of uh, the fight for freedom Uh, And this week we're going to see how we fight for freedom by comparing the messengers, the false teachers, and then we'll see Paul the Apostle. Now at the uh, 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, uh, the favorite for the women's 3,000 meter uh, run was an American athlete called Mary Decker. Uh, She had won gold in the 1983 World Championships in Helsinki and was destined to win gold in her homeland. Now, if I was running uh, a question of sport and the round, what happened next, I wonder how many of you know what happened next in this race. During this race, the final, the British runner, Zola Budd, was leading about five minutes into the race. Now, when you overtake in the 3,000 meters or any kind of long-distance race on the track, you can only cut in to the front, in front of everybody else, when you are a full stride ahead. However, Zola Bud overtook Decker, and she cut in earlier than being a full stride ahead, and so she tripped Decker up. And Mary Decker fell spectacularly. She injured her hip, and her Olympic dream was over. 
Zola Bird finished fourth and was booed around the track for the rest of the race. It is one of the most controversial incidents in Olympic track and field history. Books have been written about this and documentaries made about it. The controversy being, did Bud do this on purpose or not? Now, I believe uh, Paul the Apostle uh, was a sports fan. And I think he specifically liked athletics. I believe this because Paul uses the theme of running a race often to describe the Christian life. Here's uh, some examples. Uh, In Acts, Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Earlier on in Galatians, he said, I want to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Philippians 3, 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, that's in athletics, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And although we can't say definitely that Paul wrote Hebrews, we read the same kind of illustration there. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And in verse 7 of our passage tonight in Galatians 5, we see Paul use the illustration to explain how the Galatian believers were living Before the false teachers show up, he says at the beginning of verse 7, you were running a good race. But there is a problem in this race in Galatians chapter 5, because just like what happened to Mary Decker, Paul says in verse 7 that someone has, he says, cut in on you. And that word cut in translates a Greek term that comes from athletics. It is to do exactly what Zola Bud did to Mary Decker. It is to cut in in front of someone, to throw them off their stride, and to trip them over in their race. And the way that that is done here in Galatians 5 is by someone keeping them from obeying the truth. Christian believers run the race by obeying the truth of the gospel. The track, if you like, is is gospel truth, and obedience is how we run. And false teachers or, or false messengers attempt to prevent Christians in that race by leading us away from the truth. That's how they cut in and make us stumble. Now, we're in a section of Galatians where Paul is calling us to fight for freedom, the freedom we have in Christ. The key verse in chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, is verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We talked about the freedom there being free from sin, its condemnation and its motivation and, and having to observe the law to try and please God. 
We're free from that and we're free now for Christ. We're like the illustration we used, a, a whale in the water. We are now in God's kingdom. We're where we're supposed to be. That's, how, that's what true freedom is. And so Paul says, that's what Christ has freed you for. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So that's where, uh, that's kind of the key verse, uh, the call to fight for freedom. That's where the call is. Uh, we're called to stand firm. And if you remember, we said it's like a tug of war uh, where we dig in as, it's, as we're, we're holding on uh, to the rope. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so Paul is showing us in these verses how to stand firm. And last week he, he told us to stand firm by comparing the message of the false teachers with the truth of the gospel. That's verses 2 to 6. So we saw the dire consequences of standing down, of letting go, and the drastic contrast of standing firm. But in verses 7 to 12, he helps us stand firm by calling us to look at the difference between the messengers, the false teachers, and Paul. That's what we're going to look at tonight. And then next time, uh, we'll see Paul compare the manner of life between the false teaching and the, the true teaching of the gospel. So we've got the, the message, the messengers, and the manner of life. But before looking at the comparison in detail, we need to examine the first word in Paul's question in verse 7. Look again at verse 7. He says, You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Who? That's the word I want to focus on. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Now, Paul knows the answer to this question for the Galatian churches, but he wants those believers to see it for themselves. The answer for these Christians was Jewish false teachers who were telling Christians that they had to follow the Jewish law around circumcision in order to be truly God's children. But I would hazard a guess that for most of us sitting here this evening, that's not the particular problem that we're facing. But the sense of false teaching cutting in on our race and hindering us from obeying the truth is a principle that applies to us as well. And so it's worth asking the question for ourselves before we compare the false messengers with Paul, who is trying to cut in on you? Who is trying to cut in on you? Perhaps it's some online teacher uh, or, or teachers that you're listening to. Perhaps it's some non-Christian influencer or celebrity or a YouTube channel that, that makes the Christian life seem rather boring or, or just untrue. Perhaps it's your friends at work or teenagers, your friends at school. Maybe, maybe they're trying to cut in on you, not even knowingly, but perhaps they are cutting in on your race. Perhaps it's family members making you rethink following Jesus. Now, we wouldn't classify all of these as false teachers, necessarily, but they all can cut in on us and make us stumble. Now, we're talking about those who cut in on your race of faith 
and hinder its progress and, and try to knock you out of it. Who does that for you? Who does that for you? It's worth thinking about because all of us have people in our lives and have things in our lives that, that do cut in on us and try to make us stumble. Well, to help us stand firm, Paul compares the, the false messengers who preach a gospel that is no gospel at all with Paul who is preaching the truth about Jesus. And first of all, what we see is that false teachers hinder Christian obedience. False teachers hinder Christian obedience. And Paul shows us four truths about false teaching, or false teachers rather, that we would do well to understand if we're going to stand firm. He shows us their nature, their origin, their effect, and their end. So first of all, their nature. The nature of false teaching is to hinder, to prevent from following the way of the gospel. And they do that by presenting an alternative road to life than the way of Christ. And notice at the beginning of verse 8 that Paul says it is persuasive. You may be persuaded to go in all sorts of directions that seem appealing and seem fulfilling, but are away from Christ. That's the nature. That's their nature. They want to take you away from Christ. But in verse 8, we see their origin. Notice what Paul says. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. In other words, it's not from God. Even though sometimes it may claim to be from God, many people will claim their teaching is from God and it's not from God at all. When Paul says the one who calls you here, he's speaking of the one who calls us from darkness to light, from death to life. It's the call of the gospel. Paul saying that God is the one who called you and gave you life. And the message that is not from God is not a message of life. Paul is saying that the God who called you and gave you life is not the one who brings a message that goes against the truth of his word. That's why our doctrine as a church that we proclaim must always be drawn from the clear meaning of the scriptures. The word of God given to us. Anything contrary to the clear meaning of what God has said in his word is not from God. However um, culturally appropriate it may sound, however nice it may, may, may look, if it goes against anything in the scriptures, it is not from the God who reveals himself in the scriptures. Thirdly, regarding false teachers, Paul shows us their effect. In verse 9, Paul uses the illustration of yeast permeating through dough. It's a well-used biblical illustration. Usually, uh, yeast is used as an illustration of corruption. Uh, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 um, to show the corrupting influence of sin in the life of a church, if it's not dealt with. How it, it permeates the, the whole life of the church. The point Paul makes in Galatians here is that a small amount of false teaching tolerated 
begins to permeate the church and its life and as its influence takes hold. When scripture is undermined, even in a seemingly small way, it begins to be undermined in other areas as well. All of God's word is true. Even if, if one part is untrue, then the whole of it can be called into question. And if we question just a part of it, it is like the yeast in the bread that starts to go through the whole dough. You can't, you can't just put a, a bit of yeast in, in the bread and then, and then think well, it'll only affect that little bit of the bread. It, it goes through it all, doesn't it? So does false teaching if it's tolerated. So we've seen the nature, the origin, and the effect. And finally, Paul shows us their end, the end for false teachers. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Paul knows how false teachers end. And he's confident that in the end, those who are true believers will not end like them. Notice, first of all, he speaks of his confidence that the believers in Galatia will not take another view. That is, they will stand firm in the faith. Why is he confident? Notice what it says. He's confident in the Lord. He's not confident because they are a special breed of Christian in Galatia. He's confident in the Lord. It is the Lord who keeps his people to the end. The true follower of Jesus will stand firm and not follow after false teaching that tries to cut in on them. They will finish the race. They will keep the faith. That doesn't mean that during the race we won't sometimes be confused. It doesn't mean that during the race we won't sometimes trip over. But a true believer gets back up again and gets over the line. For our race is not about finishing first, it's about finishing. So if you do fall over, you don't have to just walk off, you get back up, you finish the race. And so whilst we see Paul um, taking false teaching very seriously, and he will attempt to root it out of the churches that he's responsible, that he's responsible for, He does not lose confidence in the power of the gospel. He doesn't lose confidence in God's power to bring his people to the finish line. God's people will endure to the end. Because God is the one who brings them to the end. And that's important for us to remember at the moment because we see lots of false teaching coming in. We see it online We see it in the news with people claiming to be Christians, undermining the the clear meaning of Scripture on all sorts of things. There's a lot in the news at the moment about the Anglican communion and what's going on there. It's it's highly publicized. But don't think, Christian, for one moment that that false teaching will in the end prevail. God will build his church. The true believers will stand firm. So let's be sure that we are among them by holding fast to the truth of the Scriptures. But notice he's confident of the end, not just of the Galatian believers, but of the false teachers themselves. He says, in verse 10, that a penalty will have to be paid 
for those who throw God's people into confusion. There's no messing around here. This is a serious thing. Jesus speaks about this in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke repeat also what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. There is literally hell to pay for those who attempt to cut in on God's people and make them stumble. It's a very serious thing, isn't it? So here are two applications from these words on false teachers that we can take home with us. Number one, first of all, be careful of what we are listening to and taking on board so that we are not listening to and taking on board all of that which is cutting in on our race. Now, I'm not just talking here about false preaching. I'm talking about any kind of rubbish that stops you and prevents you from running your race. Uh, in, in IT, uh, we have a phrase that is politely put, rubbish in, rubbish out. When uh, you've got computer code that is, is rubbish, as that goes in and you use it, what comes out is rubbish. And in our lives, the principle of rubbish in, rubbish out applies. If all you are doing is watching and listening to that which draws attention either away from Christ or you only ever watch that which never draws attention to Christ, then you can expect to trip over more often than not. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you can only ever watch and listen to Christian things. What I'm saying is that should not be our complete diet. I mean, just for example, doom scrolling is a perfect example of this, isn't it? Hours of life each week wasted. Now, I'm not saying you can't spend time scrolling on your phone. I'm not saying that. What I am doing is challenging, challenging us as God's people about how much we do that. Paul writes in Romans that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are not transformed. This isn't what Paul says, but this is an application. We are not transformed by the numbing of our minds. And so we need to be taking in a regular and good diet of biblical teaching and spending time with the Lord, don't we? This will help us grow and recognize false teaching when it comes our way and tries to cut in on us. Spend time with the Lord every day. That's the first thing. But secondly, we also need to be careful of what we are teaching and be well prepared to share the truth with others so that we are not in any way a stumbling block. When you are teaching in church, or leading a group, or reading the Bible with someone, make sure you're prepared. When you're sharing your faith with your colleagues or your friends, 
and you don't have an answer to a question they may have. Have the courage to say, I don't know, and go and find the answer. Don't just make up something that you think might sound okay. We need to be careful that we're not causing ourselves to stumble in our attitude and that we're not causing others to stumble in the way that we talk and teach them. And that applies not just to those who have positions of of teaching in a church. That applies to all of us just as we are Christians speaking Christ to others, doesn't it? So we've seen false teachers that cut in. But in verses 11 and 12, we see the contrast of Paul. Paul preaches Christ crucified. Paul preaches Christ crucified. First of all, it's worth noting again, uh, as Paul often does in this letter, his familial love for these people. Uh, He calls them brothers and sisters. There's a real... um, Interesting contrast in this letter that he calls them all sorts of, of, of things um, that, that sound horrible, uh, like bewitched and, 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 and so on. But he also reminds them that they are his brothers and sisters. He loves them. Uh, and in verse 11, there seems to be an accusation against Paul that he is preaching circumcision. Or that he agrees with the doctrine of the false teachers. So what seems to be happening is the false teachers are saying, you should be circumcised. And what they're then saying is, look, Paul even agrees with us. Now it's possible that they were referring to an incident in Acts chapter 16 where Paul had Timothy circumcised. Now Paul met Timothy, who was a a young believer, and he was impressed by him. And Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, but he was not circumcised. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised. Why? Well, it wasn't for Timothy's salvation. He was already a believer. But it was to give Timothy access to the synagogue that he would be able to access through his Jewish mother so that both Paul and Timothy could preach the gospel to the Jews there. It was a totally different kind of circumstance to what was going on in Galatia. But the false teachers were saying that Paul still preached circumcision. But if Paul did this, he says in verse 11, then why am I still being persecuted? If Paul was to preach circumcision, he would not face the kind of opposition and persecution that he did. Why? Because if he preached circumcision, there would be no offense. Notice in the second half of verse 11, Paul says, If he preached circumcision, then the offense of the cross would be abolished. Do you see that there in verse 11? The offense of the cross would be abolished. What does Paul mean by the offense of the cross? He means that the message of the cross is offensive. It's offensive in a number of ways. It's offensive because it says that our Savior, the one that we trust in, is someone who became weak and pathetic to represent us because we are weak and pathetic before God in our sin. It's offensive because it shows the horror of our sin that the cross was what was needed. We needed a crucified saviour. That's offensive. It's offensive because of the claim that the cross is the only way which you are saved. It is not by works. It is not by another religion. It is not by circumcision. It is not by the cross plus 
or minus anything else. It is the only way. That's an offense to people. It is offensive because it means that I contribute nothing to my salvation, but must come before God in humility. It's an offense because it displays the wrath of God that is due to us because of our sin. My sin is so serious that the full wrath of God is what I deserve for my sin and is what Jesus received on the cross for my sin. That is an offense because people don't think they're really that bad. But if you preach another message, a message where the cross is not the only way or the cross alone is not the only way, then it doesn't become quite so offensive. Now we see this in, in some of the ways the cross is depicted. It can be just a, a, a merely an example of love, but nothing more. The cross can be dressed up as a, a mere symbol. The cross can be just something we wear around our neck. We blunt the offense of the cross when we avoid talking about sin. Or we downplay sin to hide the fact that God is angry with us for our sin. But just generally, the, the message of the cross can really be the message of Christianity. And isn't that, in our culture today, an offense? Christianity is seen as a religion that is intolerant and bigoted, even if that is not true. If we speak the truth about Christ, people will be offended. And so the temptation is to blunt the message so that we're not offensive. But Paul doesn't preach any other gospel. Paul does not hide from the cross. Rather, Paul preaches Christ crucified and he was willing to suffer for it. And that is the big contrast between him and the false teachers Look how seriously Paul takes the issue in verse 12. Look at the fury he has with these false teachers who are perverting the message of the cross. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, at the risk of, of being offensive, this is as rude as it sounds. In the pagan temples of the day, some priests would literally castrate themselves in order to please their God, their false God. And Paul is basically saying, I wish that they wouldn't stop at circumcision. I wish they would go the whole way because it will do them in being circumcised as much good as it does the pagans in fully emasculating themselves. And furthermore, what he's saying is it would then make them unable to reproduce and they wouldn't be able to give birth to any more false teachers from them. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But one writer puts it like this. When the wolf enters the fold of Christ, is the shepherd to be condemned who wishes his destruction as absolutely necessary for the safety of the sheep? Let me read that again. When the wolf enters the fold of Christ, is the shepherd to be condemned who wishes his destruction as absolutely necessary for the safety of the sheep? A teacher who loves his people will be angry at those who try to cut in on them and will wish that they would stop what they're doing, whatever it takes. And in fact, that is a loving thing 
to be angry about. We need to ensure that we have a healthy diet of sound teaching that teaches the truth of the gospel from a heart that loves God and loves his people. So pray for the teaching from this church. Pray for the church. Pray for the leaders of it. Pray for the preachers. Pray for the Sunday school teachers. Pray for the youth and children's workers. But let's pray for all of us to not be ashamed of the gospel even though it causes offence. Let's pray for conversations that we have with friends and, and colleagues and family members, that we would know what to say as the Spirit leads us, to speak the truth, even if it means that people won't like us anymore, or people will throw us out of our families. Let's be willing to speak the truth, even at the risk of being an offence. But there is also a sense in which we help one another not to stumble in our race from this passage. Because this, um, this, this teaching of the truth is, is not just the responsibility in a church of the teachers and leaders in a church. As we are feeding on his word, the outworking of that is to help one another. Last uh, week, we saw that faith in Jesus results in works of love. And true love always directs people to Christ. And so as we love each other, we will be speaking Christ to each other. The 1984 Olympics was famous for a trip. But eight years later, in 1992, there was another, possibly more famous track incident from another British athlete. Now, many of you probably haven't heard of Zola Budd, but many of you may remember Derek Redmond. 16 seconds into the 400-meter semi-final, Derek Redmond pulled his hamstring, but he decided to continue the race limping. He wanted to finish the race. And he was still running well after everyone else had finished. When all of a sudden, his dad comes out of the crowd and helps his son finish the race. And both of them, as they were running around the track, got a standing ovation from the crowd. His dad came on, put his arm around his son, and helped his son to finish his race. As Christians, when Paul says we are in a race, we are not in a race against one another. We help one another over the line. A messenger of the gospel, a Christian, that is you, brother or sister, is not concerned with their own glory, but with helping God's people limp over the line to win the prize. And really, all of us limp over the line, don't we? John Calvin is helpful here. He says this, the true course of a Christian is well described by the prophet Isaiah when he says, 
that each of us will take the hand of our friend and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us of his ways. If we were resolved to do this, and had the desire within us to submit ourselves to God fully, then we would all run together. And the first would help those who followed behind. The weakest would not hinder those who were acting as their guides, but would rather encourage them to march on. We're to help one another run our race by speaking Christ to one another and not cutting in on one another. And so it applies not just to people that preach or teach, it applies to us all. Now perhaps to personalize this just a little bit, is there, is there someone specific that, that you can help run their race by helping them know and understand the truth? Is there someone you can read the Bible with and pray with and put your arm around and help them as they approach the finish line? Let's stand firm by looking for sound doctrine. Let's stop wasting time on rubbish and spend our lives proclaiming Christ to one another and to our world and to help many finish the race on the track of the gospel of truth. Well, we're going to close our time together with two songs. The first is a prayer that we would have the mind of Christ our Savior, that mindset of loving and serving others, which leads us to our final song that we would hear the call of the kingdom. So let's stand as we pray in song and uh, sing together the call of the kingdom.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.